Heavenly Father, Father, we see the amazing things you're doing in the world right now. You've gone to a lot of trouble to reshape this world, and I pray, Father, that this is, for us, a sign that things are coming to their appointed end. And although the Bible itself does not speak about an event like this particularly, Father, we know that you're reshaping the world because it needs to change, because the end dictates that things will look very different than they do today. And so, Father, I pray that you put all of the turmoil, the crisis, the fear and anxiety, the panic, put it all to your glory in some way, Father. Bring the world to a new recognition of how tenuous life is and how permanent eternity will be so that through these unique circumstances you might call men and women to you in a recognition of the truth of the gospel. And for your church, Father, wherever we are gathered, whether together in the same room or through other ways as we do today, bind us together, Father, by your spirit so that we work as one in your name to minister to those around us in the midst of this crisis, put it to its full advantage, bring souls into the kingdom and nurture and grow up those who know you in the strength of a faith that understands this life is not all that we long for or trust in. Help us, Father, to see the eternal purposes in this and to be useful to you in the midst of it. And then finally, Father, I ask for encouragement and protection for those who are in this body and all who listen to this teaching, Father, that you'd encourage them that you are still on the throne, that life here on this earth is going exactly as your sovereign will intends, even in all the chaos, and that you are and always will be the great healer and provider, that you are protecting and guiding your church, even as some may regrettably leave us but come home to you. Nevertheless, Father, all is happening according to your will. So we trust in that. We rely on that today, Father, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're back to the four days of testing that Jesus experiences in the temple. This is the week before he dies on the cross. And as we go into the next day of that period of time, the third day of his testing, I wanted to clarify some of the events of this timeline because it's easy to get the events jumbled up. Now, all four gospel writers give us a view on the events of this week, but it's Mark that really gives us the clearest timeline, if you will. He really lays it out most clearly for us. Now, in Mark 11, here's what you learn. Jesus enters the temple for the first time on Sunday, the day we've called Palm Sunday, but Mark says he spends very little time there. Matthew tells us that on that same day, in the short time that he's there, he's confronted by the religious leaders and given his first test because there were children in the court of the temple calling out on Jesus as the Messiah, as you remember, and the religious leaders uh, challenged Jesus to silence the children. And in response, Jesus quotes from Scripture quoting that these children were the obedient ones. They were doing exactly as Scripture expected. It was the religious leaders who were actually wrong. And it was through that response of Scripture that Jesus passed his first test. Now, all of that happened on the Sunday. And then Mark says Jesus goes back to the temple on the second day. Now we're on Monday. And on the way to the temple on that day, Jesus withers that fig tree. Now, that's also the day, Mark says, that he goes in and he upsets all the tables that had the money changers doing business. And he kicks all that out of the temple, kicks the money changers out. He puts a stop to the corruption that was going on in the temple, at least at that time. And as he does so, you remember, he quoted from Isaiah, in this case, declaring that the temple 
was his house of prayer. He actually uses that term, his, quoting from Isaiah, which is to say Jesus was claiming to be the Passover lamb. This was his house, he was the lamb. And in that way, he passes a second day of testing. Now, this is an interesting one because he's not challenged on that day by any religious leader. The challenge on that day was whether Jesus would sanctify the house of God in preparation for the Passover. Because the Exodus uh, prescription for Passover required that a nation, uh, that the nation of Israel, that the Jewish families in that time would sanctify their home. They would remove all leaven, that is all yeast, from the home, but it was a picture of removing sin. So Jesus removes all leaven, that is all sin, from the house, that is from the temple, in preparation for Passover. Well, that was his second test. Now, in Matthew's account, he combines the events of this first day, Sunday, and the second day, Monday, in his narrative. So when you read Matthew, it it appears as though all of this happens on the same day. But in reality, it was spread over two days. And so now, in the narrative of Matthew 21, we've actually reached the third day of Jesus' testing. This is now Tuesday. And a lot happens on Tuesday. A lot happens on this third day of testing. This will be, by far, the longest day of testing for Jesus. In fact, the events of this day, Tuesday, are recorded in Matthew from chapter 21 all the way to chapter 26. So we have all of those chapters covering just one day in the temple. And in that time, you're gonna see multiple encounters with the three different major religious groups within Israel. And that's the next uh, bit of background we need to understand. In Israel, at this time, there were three principal groups of religious leaders who were responsible for religious life in the nation of Israel. And all three opposed Jesus' ministry. Let's look at each one of them for a moment. First, there were the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees represented the liberal end of the religious spectrum in Israel. They had a majority of seats on the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling council, the highest ruling council in Israel. And because they controlled the Sanhedrin, they also controlled the temple and all temple business. Now, it's for that reason that the Sadducees are also called in the Bible chief priests, So when you hear chief priests, think Sadducees. Now the Sadducees got their income from the operation of the temple because they controlled it. And that included not only the commerce of what you see going on in the temple compound, like money changers and the like, but also from the tithes and the offerings of the Jews. So they opposed Jesus for two reasons. First, because Jesus took a literal conservative view of the scriptures, while the Pharisees were liberal in that respect, They saw Jesus as contradicting their views and they opposed him for that. And then secondly, because Jesus opposed greed and corruption and the combining of ministry and commerce in the way that he did, especially within the temple operations, well, he was threatening the Sadducees' source of wealth. So they opposed him because he was undermining their authority and their income. Now secondly, there were Pharisees. You've heard me mention them quite a bit. The Pharisees were the conservative end of the religious spectrum in Israel. Now, they were only a minority on the Sanhedrin. They they didn't have control of it. The Sadducees did. But nevertheless, they were the religious leaders of the culture generally. They were in charge of daily religious life. For most Jewish people, they had the authority uh, over the training and the appointing of rabbis in the local synagogues. They also set the policy for how synagogues operated. And perhaps most importantly, 
They were the judges of the law. If someone was accused to have violated the law, you went before Pharisees to receive your judgment. And so for that reason, Pharisees in the Bible are also called elders. So when you hear of the elders coming before Jesus, think Pharisees. Now the Pharisees gained their wealth from money given to the local synagogues, and they took a part of that, but they also took bribes in judging court cases. So if you wanted a court case to be judged in your favor, you wanted to be granted a divorce when you might not otherwise have been able to get one, well, a little money under the table to the local Pharisee and you could arrange what you wanted. And they opposed Jesus for a couple of reasons also. First, he threatened to upset Pharisaic rabbinical rule. He was uh, frequently saying that the rabbinical system and the rules of the Mishnah on which the Pharisaic system was based were not valid. And so if Jesus had put an end to the Mishnah, well then the Pharisees' power base would have evaporated. And that brings us to the second reason they opposed him, similar to the Sadducees. As Jesus undermined the Pharisees' power base, he also threatened their income, their ability to make money through that system. And so of course they opposed him for that reason. And then finally, there was a third group. A third group we have not heard about, at least until now, in the gospel. That third group was called the Herodians. Now, Herodians occupied a relatively moderate place on the religious spectrum within Israel, somewhere between Pharisees on the conservative side and Sadducees on the liberal side. And Herodians were religiously conservative like Pharisees, but they were socially liberal like Sadducees. But they differed from Sadducees and Pharisees in one particular way. The moderate Herodians were attracted to Rome and to Roman culture and to Roman economic power. So they approved of Roman rule, and they liked the positive economic impact that Rome had on Judea. And most importantly, they approved and supported Rome's appointed king, Herod, which is how they took their name, Herodians. So Herodians, how did they gain their wealth? Well, they gained their wealth from working closely with Roman authorities. They made their money through their political associations with Rome. So naturally, the Herodians would oppose Jesus because he came along calling himself a king. He was offering to set up a new Jewish kingdom in place of the Roman authorities, or so they thought. And so if that had happened, if a new Jewish kingdom had arisen in Israel, well, then they would have lost their connection to their Roman benefactors. And so that would have been an end to their influence and income. And so they too oppose Jesus. So you have Pharisees or elders, you have Sadducees or chief priests, and you have Herodians, all opposing Jesus for slightly different reasons. And on this day, on Tuesday, through the length of this period that we're going to study, they all come together and they make unlikely bedfellows in uniting against Jesus in the time that he spends in the temple. They're all hoping to discredit him in front of the crowds, in front of these huge Passover crowds, and in so doing, they put it into his ministry. So the pressure here is on Jesus. The pressure to handle the attacks well, to withstand what they come against him with, to survive, as it were, in the face of all of this and come out looking okay in front of the crowds. So you could say this is the rabbinical equivalent to the Super Bowl or to the World Cup. And the attacks are gonna come in waves. We're gonna see these political and religious leaders coming to Jesus in waves, one after another, sometimes together, sometimes apart, each of them bringing questions to trip him up. And in between those moments, Jesus will teach. 
often to the crowd, sometimes directly to the leaders, usually through parables. And then even after all of that, after this long day in the temple on Tuesday, Jesus, when he leaves the temple at the end of this day, is gonna continue teaching his disciples privately up on the Mount of Olives concerning the events of the last days. He packs so much into this one day because his time is running out and he has some things that need to be said before he's gone. All right, so that's our overview. Now, having done that, let's look at the first attack on this third day of testing in the temple. And that starts in Matthew 21, where in verse 23, and I'll just introduce it with the very first verse. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? All right, so the first attack is brought by two of the three main religious groups I just outlined, by Sadducees and Pharisees, because you notice it says there are priests and elders. Remember, the priests are the Sadducees, the elders are the Pharisees. Now, as I also said, these two, Pharisees, Sadducees, they sit on opposite ends of the political spectrum. So normally, they're rivals and enemies, And yet today, they prove that old adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend because they've come together as representatives here of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees as the majority, the Pharisees as the minority. And in that official capacity, they've come to inquire of Jesus's authority. And so in verse 23, they challenge Jesus to explain the source of his authority to teach within Israel. Now, under Pharisaic rules of that day, no one could just run out and put their shingle out and become a rabbi and teach just on their own initiative. You had to be properly trained and properly validated, or you had to have had a reputable authority give you the right to do that teaching, to have that role, to be a rabbi. So that was the rule of the day. And by the way, I should add, to some extent, Churches in our day still follow a standard of, same, of a similar sort. You have churches today in many cases that require that ministers have a, a degree, a seminary background, a certification, that they be ordained, etc. And they have those standards so that we set some limit, some minimum for who can stand in front of us and teach. Now in Jesus' day, how did we gain that authority? Well, in that day, a teacher of the word, someone who was a, a rabbinical source, a, a rabbi we would say, They gained their authority to teach by being trained and being approved by a qualified rabbi. And that qualified rabbi, in turn, gained their authority from having received it from some prior recognized rabbi. So in other words, the rabbinical system that had been set up by Pharisees required that a rabbi receive training and approval from an unbroken chain of previously approved rabbis. And you can see this principle at work elsewhere in the New Testament, in Paul's ministry. In the book of Acts, there's a moment where Paul feels the need to validate his own ministry in front of a crowd. It happens in Acts chapter 22, and I'll just read one verse for you from Acts 22, verse 3. Paul, speaking to a crowd, says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are also today. 
So Paul says in that brief verse, he was a Pharisee. I know that that might be a surprise to you, but Paul actually started his ministry as a Pharisee. He was one of, uh, I guess, the bad guys, if you will, in his origination in ministry, and that's what makes his story of conversion so special. But he was a Pharisee before he came to faith, and after coming to faith, when he's speaking to a crowd in, in chapter 22, he defends his authority as a teacher before the crowd on the Pharisaic basis. That is, he says, I was trained by Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was a highly respected rabbi of that day. So what Paul effectively said was, I went to Harvard. Uh, I went to Oxford. Uh, uh, In the eyes of his audience, that gave him high authority to teach. Now, we know that in reality, Paul's authority to teach didn't come from Gamaliel. I mean, he came from a much higher authority. He came from Jesus directly when Jesus appointed him as an apostle. So why does Paul appeal to Gamaliel in this moment and not Jesus? Well, in this moment, he's speaking to a crowd of skeptics. These are people who don't accept the testimony of Jesus, not yet anyway. So to gain their confidence and to sidestep the whole question of authority, he puts out the rabbinical standard knowing that they would expect that standard. So in the same way, you have religious leaders now coming to Jesus in the temple, asking Jesus, to defend his authority. That is, they're asking him, where have you been trained? Who did you receive your teaching under? How do we know that what you're doing is uh, authentic, uh, uh, validated by reasonable authority? Now, here again, just like Paul, (laughs) we know that Jesus' authority to teach and his knowledge of the scriptures had no earthly source. Jesus is uh, called the truth by John in his gospel. So in other words, Jesus was the author of Scripture, so he doesn't need anyone to teach him Scripture. He wrote the thing, and so in a sense, you can say his authority came directly from himself, but Luke goes on to tell us that because Jesus was incarnate, because he became a man, he had to grow up, and he had to grow up in the instruction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke says that Jesus' authority came from the Father who gave Jesus the opportunity to grow in wisdom and in stature from a young man onward. You remember the scene when he's left in the temple by his parents and they come back to find him as a young boy teaching adults in the temple. So Jesus had to grow into that even though, of course, his knowledge of it predates the creation itself. So the answer to the, the question of the religious leaders, the true answer that Jesus would likely have given them if he could was that he had personal authority as the Word, as the Son of God, and beyond that, he was given authority by his Father who sent him to earth in this mission and equipped him to do the work that he was given. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't give them that direct answer, and here's why. Because he knew they did not believe in him, in his claims to being Messiah, to being the Son of God, and if they don't believe in him for those things, then when he appeals to those reasons for his authority, they weren't gonna accept that explanation either. I mean, can you imagine that if he had said, I have my own authority as God and I am the son of God, do you think they would have said, oh, that's very helpful, now we understand, thank you, have a nice day in the temple? No, I mean, they would have clearly rejected that and in fact, they would have called it blasphemy for having equated himself with God and I think that's exactly what they were hoping he would do. I think the nature of their trap in this moment is the expectation that Jesus was going to make that kind of an appeal, and when he did, they would have cause to accuse him before the crowd. Now, Jesus knew this, so instead of walking into their trap, he takes advantage of something, 
of a traditional rabbinical method of discourse that was common in the day, and he does so in order to shine this spotlight of scrutiny back onto his accusers and their dishonest motives. Let's see what he does here in verse 24. Jesus says to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they will all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, this is an interesting moment. Really, there's a chess match happening here, and it's really fascinating to break it down. All right, verse 24, we'll start there. Jesus responds by saying, I will answer your question by asking you a question. Now, this is not being evasive. This is actually an acceptable rabbinical practice. Rabbis commonly would test one another's ideas or interpretations by posing questions to questions. Uh, So you could have a group of rabbis literally conduct an entire conversation with nothing but questions back and forth. Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum tells a story of a Gentile who went to a rabbi one time and said, why do you always answer questions with questions? And the rabbi said, well, why not? And that's just typical for the way rabbis thought. Questions were a way of digging down. So in verse 25, Jesus answers his accusers by posing a question of his own. His question is, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now he's referring to, when he says the baptism, he's referring to the baptism ministry of John that he conducted on the shores of the Jordan River. And so the question is, did John operate with the authority of God, that is from heaven? Uh, That is, was it legitimate? Was it holy? Was it approved by God? Or did John invent this baptism ministry all on his own? Was Was it of men? Was it of his own authority and initiative? Which, if that's true, it's a fraud. It's just something made up. So in effect, what Jesus is asking the religious leaders to do is to uh, render judgment on the legitimacy of John's ministry. Now, before we look at the answer and what happens as a result, let's, let's address one question up front. How does Jesus' question to these men address their question to him about his authority? Well, remember, Jesus' public ministry began at the baptism of John. And if the Pharisees said that John's ministry was from heaven, that is, it was from God, well, then all Jesus would have to do at that point is respond by saying, I receive my authority from John. That is, he would say, my authority comes from a man, John, who you now say had his authority from God. So I am now authorized by John to continue in ministry. Now, that's not actually how Jesus received his authority, but it would have been the way he could have escaped from their question. But here's the truth. Jesus knew they weren't going to give that answer. He knew they weren't going to say John's ministry was from heaven, and the reason is because they opposed John's ministry. John never studied under a rabbi, and certainly the rabbis never authorized his ministry, so in effect, John was not one of them. He wasn't in the club. And moreover, you remember John publicly called the Pharisees vipers and hypocrites to their faces in front of a crowd. So if these religious leaders had said John's ministry had the blessing of God, then they would have been condemning themselves in front of the crowd, and so they weren't going to do that. Now, on the other hand, they also could not say 
that John's ministry was of man. That is, it was a fraud because now that John has been murdered by Herod Antipas, he's become a hero within Jewish culture so that in the eyes of the Jewish people now, John was a martyr for Israel having stood up to the evil Roman authorities and I mean, for them to stand in this moment in the temple surrounded by a huge Passover crowd and say that John was a fraud, that'd be like someone standing up in a Boston Irish Catholic pub calling the Pope a fraud. It it would be political and probably literal suicide to do something like that. So they can't say John's ministry comes from heaven, nor can they say John's ministry comes from his own authority, that is, it comes from earth, it's a fraud. And in that moment, the hunters have now become the hunted because Jesus has them in this trap. And you see in verse 25, they're huddling and they're talking among themselves, trying to figure out how do we get out of this? And they recognize, well, we can't say we're in favor of John. We look foolish for having opposed him. We can't say John's ministry was a fraud. We risk getting in trouble with this crowd and we're afraid of them. So to save face, they come up with the answer, we just don't know (laughs) what was the truth with John. We don't know whether he was from God or not. Now, this is a coward's play. It's just an attempt to save face in the circumstances because they realize they've been outmaneuvered. And everyone in the crowd, I don't think the crowd was dumb. I think everyone in the crowd saw what was going on and they recognized that the Pharisees' refusal to answer here was just an attempt to save themselves. So then you see how this applies in the end because in verse 27, Jesus says, well, because you can't answer me about John, I can legitimately refrain from answering your question about my authority. Now, why? Well, look at this. Because these religious leaders never intervened to stop John's ministry in the day that John was operating, they allowed him to continue baptizing all the way up until Herod Antipas finally took him aside, took him out of business and killed him eventually. So that gives Jesus this incontrovertible logic. That is, if the Pharisees were willing to permit John's ministry to continue, even though they say they don't know what authority he had to do it, well then by that same standard, They don't need to demand Jesus substantiate his authority in order to go forward in ministry because self-evidently, the religious leaders don't care if they know what authority you have. They're willing to let people minister without knowing the authority that they have. They were trapped by their own inability to answer the question. So religious authority or teaching authority in Jesus' day operated in this way where you needed to be able to substantiate who gave you the right And if we look at it from the perspective of history and think this is so odd, we're missing something because in our day it actually works exactly the same way. I mean, think about it. We don't rely on rabbis, yes, I know, but that doesn't mean we don't recognize that there is a chain of authority in ministry. In fact, did you know we follow exactly the same standards for validating ministerial authority as Jesus followed for his own ministry? That is to say, we have both personal authority directly from God but also we come under authority that has been given to us here. Just as Jesus had his own personal authority as the Son of God, and yet he also submitted to the authority of the Father. So how do we have the same? Well, first, you have personal authority to minister on the basis that you have a spiritual gift. You have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to engage in ministry. And the very fact that the Lord has given you a spiritual gift presupposes that he intends you to use it. In other words, it is evidence that you have his authority to go out and minister, for if he did not intend for you to minister, why would he give you a spiritual gift to do so? 
And the Bible says every Christian is equipped in this way. Paul says in Romans 12 that we all have gifts. Those gifts will differ one to another according to the grace that God appoints to us, but that we should go out and minister in a keeping with the gift that we have. So what Paul's saying in effect is that all Christians have authority directly from heaven by virtue of our spiritual gift to be engaged in ministry to others. So if you have a a gift of prayer, or a gift of teaching, or a gift of help, or, or, or a gift of giving, or whatever gift you have, you have unique God-given authority to minister to others in that way as gifted, wherever you are, however things happen. I mean, in our current circumstances, this is a great reminder that your authority to minister, your opportunity to minister has not changed just because the, the physical gathering is changing or because the constraints are coming in different ways for how we move or where we you know, spend our day, etc. That's not changing how God has equipped you. It's not changing your authority. And so we should each exercise that authority. We should do as God has given us the power to do. You do not need me or anyone else to give you permission to minister in the gift that God has given you. You have the Lord's authority to use it. And the Spirit will direct you in that ministry as you follow him. Now that's one side of this. But on the other hand, We are also like Jesus in the fact that we are still under another's authority. Now, Jesus, of course, was under the authority of the fathers. All of us are also under his authority, of course, but the analogy works a little differently for us. When Jesus spoke of his own authority under the Father, he says in John 12, 49, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Now, think about that. The words that came out of Jesus' mouth are, by definition, the word the word of God. And yet, even then, the author, Christ, the word, was obeying the Father in what to say. So the two work together. He is the author, and in that sense, he needs no one else's permission, certainly no man on earth, but yet he was also submitted to the Father. And we have a similar arrangement. That is, we have been given a gift by the Father so that we have the ability to minister independently of anybody's authority, but we have also been placed under the authority of Christ and the leadership within the body of Christ. And in that sense, we are supposed to use our gift in a way that fits in that structure. So simply put, you cannot look at ministry like living marooned on a desert island. Uh, I also like to say Christianity is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. You can't pretend you're a free agent. Uh, you, You can't think that your ministry is directed solely by your own desires or your own ideas or that you can choose everything on your own and and give no regard to what's going on in the body of Christ. There is accountability expected in the ministry of every Christian. We have authority to minister from God, but he himself has told us to submit to our leaders and to participate in a helpful way within the body of Christ. So here's the balance. The balance, just as Jesus balanced what he was under, whether he had his own authority or whether he was under the Father's authority, we have to balance the fact that we have gifts and authority on our own and a responsibility within the body. So as you move out in ministry, as we serve other people, remember that we operate under the authority of church leaders as God has appointed and for the betterment of the body. So that's supposed to help shape your ministry, directing it to where it's best used. Uh, discipling you in the process of how to put it to work. And I will tell you, from my own personal experience, if you receive the instruction and the direction of the leaders in the church, those who are over you in any respect, 
what will come out of that in the long run is that your ministry will be more fruitful and your service more effective to the body because not only is the Lord working through your gifts to minister to people, he's working through the gifts of that leader to minister to you, to make you a more effective minister of others. I mean, it's good everywhere. It's a win-win when you operate in that way. That is how Jesus worked, not in a human sense, obviously, but though he was God, he remained submissive to the Father's will so that he would do all that was required exactly as the Father expected. So we're gonna mirror our own ministry in the same, on the basis of what we see in Jesus in all things, and in that includes in the area of authority. All right, let's move on. Having silenced the religious leaders, now he turns the tables on them. He puts them to the test. Verse 28, he says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. All right, this is the parable he offers them, and it's very simple. You have a father, you have two sons. The father calls upon the sons to help him work the family vineyard. Now, naturally, you know, he expected his sons would obey the father's will, that he would, they would participate in the family business. This was culturally expected, obviously. And then you have this first son who, in response to his father's request, just flatly says to the father, nope, not gonna do it. I'm imagining the first son was probably a teenager. And this is his active rebellion. Now, you have to understand, in our culture today, this kind of thing happens, unfortunately. And probably something you've experienced if you have kids and you've been in a similar situation, you know what this feels like. But in this day and in this culture, this was rare. In fact, I'd say this is almost unheard of. To have the father in a household speak to his son in such a way and then have the son speak so directly in defiance. I mean, there are few things worse than their culture. And in fact, a rebellious son like this could have been put to death in some cases. Now, in the story, though, This rebellious son soon has a change of heart and he feels some regret for what he said. And at some point, he eventually goes out and does as the father required. He ends up in the vineyard. Now, he may come a little late for the day, but at least he's there. And the key is this. When the day ends, where is the son? He's in the field. He's in the vineyard doing as the father asked. Then you have the second son. Now, the second son has a kind of opposite reaction. He, he agrees to the father's request. You notice he ends up by saying, sir, that, that statement of, of uh, respect to the father's authority. But in his case, all this agreement is just for show. He doesn't openly rebel against his father's authority like his brother did, but he still disobeys. And in fact, the son, the second son, he disobeys without ever having a change of heart. He never goes out into the vineyard. So he has this outward appearance of obedience, but his heart is completely opposed to the Father, and it never changes. So again, the important question is, where was he at the end of the day? And at the end of the day, he wasn't in the vineyard. So then Jesus asks the obvious question. He says, which of these two sons did the will of the Father? 
Now look, neither of them were perfect. I mean, if you want to put this up against a standard of perfection, you would say, well, both of them had problems here. You know, we would love to have seen this, the, the reaction of the second son and the, be, and the behavior of the first son. Put those two together, you got the best son. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. But that's not how life works for us, for anyone for that matter. It's not realistic in a world of sin. And so given the choices that are presented in, the God, in, in this particular parable, which of these two sons is closest to the will of the father? Well, as I said earlier, the key is where do they end up at the end of this day? Only one of them was in the field at the end of the day. And that is the truest test of whether you are seeking to please the father or not. Does obedience to the word of God, to the word of the father, materialize in the end? Is there obedience in the end? It wasn't the one who expressed the most willingness to obey, it was the one, it wasn't the one who gave the most lip service, in other words, it was the one who actually obeyed, the one who actually moved in the direction of the Father's will, and only the first son did that. Granted, he didn't do it at first, but he did it in the end. So in verse 32, the religious leaders understand this, I think anybody would have understood it, and so they give the correct answer, they say the first son did the will of the Father, but in doing so, they set their own trap. Jesus then moves to making a comparison from the parable, and he compares the first son, the one who was initially rebellious, but later repentant, he compares that son to prostitutes, to tax collectors. These are the the classic poster children in the Bible for the worst of the worst, people who epitomize the most rebellious Jewish people in society, the ones who would openly disobey the law, openly disobey the Lord. But in the end, if they're like this first son, The prostitutes were the ones who, when they heard John's preaching of repentance, listened. The tax collectors were the ones who, when they heard Jesus' call to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand, are the ones who turned. So it matters where you end your life on this question of obedience to the will of the Father, not on where you begin it, because, friends, everyone starts in the same place. That's something that I think some Christians and certainly many unbelievers fail to appreciate. We are all sinners. There's no one who starts in a better place than anyone else. And because we're all without hope for redemption, we're all short of the glory of God, the Bible says we all need the grace that God offers in Jesus Christ. So having all been born with a disobedient heart, like that first son, the question isn't who has made the the right lip service to God. The question is who has turned, because we all need to turn. Now the religious leaders, the men that are in this crowd with Jesus, Pharisees, Sadducees, the like, They didn't understand that. They thought it was all about the external. And they prided themselves on this false notion that they had spent their whole lives doing exactly what the Father wanted, when in reality they had just spent their whole lives saying, I will go, sir, and they never went. Remember the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, keep some of these commandments. And he says, I've kept them all since my youth. That is exactly the mindset of these religious leaders. And Jesus says, because they have taken this thinking, not only in approaching Jesus' call to repentance, but also in John's righteous ministry, it reveals their unrighteous heart. Here's what he means. John's ministry bore obvious spiritual fruit. Look, you don't, you know, put Jesus aside for a moment. If you were one of those religious leaders in that day, you had a case example of John. You saw his ministry from beginning to end, so you could fairly evaluate the effect of it. What was the effect of his ministry? Well, as Jesus points out, he called prostitutes and tax collectors to repent. 
And when they heard that message, many of them did. And those changes of heart were nothing short of miracles. And as such, they were clear evidence that John's ministry was a movement of the Spirit. And here's where that tells on the religious leaders, because ordinarily, these religious leaders would have applauded results like that. I mean, in theory, if someone had come up to them and said, what would you say about a man who preaches repentance and prostitutes and tax collectors agree and repent and cease their sinful behaviors? What would you say about that rabbi? I assure you, they would have embraced any rabbi who had the kind of power like that to convert the sinners because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for that matter, were frequently seen going about criticizing, condemning the people who did the things John was likewise condemning. But Jesus says in verse 32, they refuse to acknowledge that. They refuse to acknowledge the clear and obvious fruit of John's ministry. They turned a blind eye to John, and you know why, of course, because John put the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the same group as those tax collectors and prostitutes. John said they were equally sinners, and rightly so. But they didn't see themselves in that respect. So as soon as John equated them to that crowd, well, now they're opposed to John. And because they turned a blind eye to John's ministry out of this selfish, self-righteous, conceited view, they were also turning a blind eye to Jesus. And they did so because it was the same problem. Their hearts had no interest in serving the Father, in turning from self-righteousness and to the grace of God. You can say it this way. Because they didn't think they needed a Savior, They didn't receive the Savior when he came. And even before that, they didn't receive the one who was sent to announce him, that is John. And in that respect, Jesus says, you're just like that second son. You want the appearance of obedience, but you're not willing to make the sacrifices to obtain it. And by that I mean this. In order to obtain the righteousness that we all seek and, and absolutely must have if we are to see the glory of God, we must make the sacrifice of our pride. We have to be willing to acknowledge the obvious truth. We are not good enough. None of us are. And and in fact, we're so far from being good enough, we couldn't even see the line for good if we looked for it. It's the definition of self-righteousness to care only about the outward appearance and to define righteousness in terms that favor who we are and how we live, such that we have to make no changes whatsoever in order to get what we want. That is not the inward reality. That is not what God sees in us. You have to be willing first to make the sacrifice of your pride to recognize I'm not good enough on my own. And then, as a function of your relationship with God established through repentance by the acceptance of his grace, now there is a continuing sacrifice of his will over mine, an obedience sacrifice, which is what that son did. He first sacrificed his pride in recognizing what he said to his father was wrong. And then he made a sacrifice of obedience. He gave up whatever plans he had that day, and he went into the field. And so with that, Jesus has passed his first test, his first encounter on this long third day in the temple. He shows his authority is such that it can't be challenged by the rabbis, and in the process, he exposes their false motives and self-righteous attitude. He shows himself to be blameless. But of course, in the process, he's sowing the seeds of his own destruction. Every time... He gets the better of these men, which has just started for now. It's got more to come. They're going to get more desperate. They're going to get more angry. Mark says in his gospel that as a result of the challenges that Jesus lays before these men, they decide right here and then, while he's in the temple, that he has to die. This is where their plans really come together. 
I mention that as we close because I want you to understand as we minister in our gifts and in the authority we've received, and as we go about the work that we have been given, which is to call a world to repentance, we need to be ready for the fact that sometimes we won't make people happy. Many times, in fact, we may make them unhappy. But sometimes, in their unhappiness, it will become an opportunity for their repentance. And that is what we're ministering for, the chance to bring a soul into the kingdom by the power of God alone, but through the work that he does in us and by the authority that he's given us. So as we look into this brave new world that we're facing, the weeks to come, however long this lasts, as we sit uh, perhaps in our homes or wherever we're told to stay, I ask that you would consider what the Lord is doing in your life through the authority he's given you and the gifts that he's given you to minister. Don't uh, miss the opportunities we have right now. Don't sit on the sidelines in this time. There is real ministry to be done. You have the authority, you have the gift to do it, and there are people around you who need to repent. Let's go to prayer. Father, I thank you, Father, that we still have an opportunity to minister in this way, even as we may be separated from one another for a time. Unite us, Father, once again by your spirit in prayer, in growing through the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, give us eyes for eternity in the midst of our circumstances. Help us to see the opportunities as you present them to us. Each person we talk to, Father, is a moment. Let every moment be useful to you. Help us make prudent decisions, Father, wise ones, ones that are not built on panic or fear. Help us to be a voice of calm in the storms that are raging around us right now. Father, help us to to move past this with a witness intact so that when this is past us and we're back to something we recognize, Father, we can look back on this time with satisfaction that we served you well in the midst of it. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.